Welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. What you're about to hear was originally recorded and broadcast for Pythagoras' Trousers, a Radio Cardiff science show and podcast. You can hear the full show and listen to past episodes at pythagoras-trousers.co.uk. Well, the 12th of November saw history being made when the Philae lander landed on comet 67P Cheryomev Gerasimenko. Easy for me to say, perhaps. The landing wasn't quite as smooth as it could have been. It certainly had its ups and downs. To find out more about the Philae lander and its adventures on the comet, I'd like to talk to Geraint Morgan, now at the Open University, but originally from here in Wales near Aberystwyth. So, Geraint, welcome to the programme. Thank you. Tell us, first of all, what what was meant to happen on the 12th of November? The orbiter released the Philae lander, I think, around about 835 Um, in the morning and at about 20 kilometers away from the surface of the comet and basically the the lander, Philae lander, took about seven hours to get down to the surface. It was due to approach the comet at relative kind of slow walking pace, so around about half a meter per second. Um, Interestingly, the final tests on the active descent system, which is a kind of gas thruster system, had failed. And um, luckily for us on the lander, the actual ADS system um, was not a go, no-go decision. So we proceeded with knowing that one of the three kind of mechanisms that would help us keep on the surface had actually failed. Um, When we actually landed on the surface, harpoons were supposed to fire. There were two harpoons that were supposed to uh, pierce the surface and have a kind of wire tether and uh, help keep us on the surface. Um, and the final uh, system to be used to keep us on the surface was some drills on the feet. Um, in reality, the harpoons didn't fire, the active descent system didn't work, and so the only thing that kind of kept us anywhere near the surface were the drills. And uh, of course, um, the reality was the lander kind of cushioned itself onto the surface and, in fact, bounced off. So we went back about a kilometer back off the surface of the comet, traveled for around about uh, just under two hours before we bounced down on the surface again. And I believe that we bounced one further time before we skidded and kind of came to rest in uh, the place we finally rested. So it wasn't quite as uh, as smooth as it might have been? I think the way we call it is non-nominal, is the the polite way of saying, uh, yeah, we basically crash landed and (laughs) didn't stick. Um, Actually, the irony is is that uh, the original design for the lander that uh, Helmut Rosenbauer, who from the German Space Agency and and Max Planck Institute, uh, he always wanted to bounce, and he always wanted this idea of being able to dissipate the energy in many stages, and uh, ironically, that's exactly what we did. Well, the, the reason for, for doing that, I suppose, is that the gravity on the comet is so weak. It's one ten-thousandth of the gravity on Earth. But also, conversely, that means that if you bounce, the worry is that you bounce faster than the escape velocity of the comet. You bounce so fast, you just don't come back down again. So, so in many senses, it was, it was kind of lucky that the, the lander came back to the surface of the comet at all. And, and once it did, there was an effort to try and find out where it was. Uh, on the comet and whether it was in a, a safe and stable place. Now, in mission control or in landing control, that must have been a pretty nerve-wracking time. Oh, absolutely. And um, what was interesting was uh, the kind of... We had feed coming through from the Rosetta Orbiter Control Center in Darmstadt, which was you know only two hours away in the motorway. Um, so again, even when the, you know, the announcement of landing 
had been made, we were all in the, in the lander control center waiting for the signal from the lander control people, and they hadn't given the signal. And uh, ironically, uh, two of my colleagues at the AOU are actually on the MUPAS team, and the MUPAS has instruments both on the harpoon but also on the feet. And so the data they were getting back was that the harpoons had not fired because their sensors had not been triggered. Um, and indeed, they were you know, able to tell us that there was something wrong because um, immediately after landing, they were picking up signatures that were not consistent with us being still and, uh, in fact, were consistent with us rotating and, uh, as you say, going back out into space. Mm. So, um, thankfully, the gravity in the comet was sufficient to eventually recapture us. And, of course, the comet itself was tumbling, so we probably... Uh, the, you know, the, the surface came closer back to us. Um, but yeah, um, within about an hour of of landing, it was quite clear there was a they were it was non-nominal, and so the lander control people came out and requested that the lander teams um, provide information. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. And uh, it was because of that kind of information that we were able to calculate. Uh, and using some of the other instruments, like I think I believe it was um, uh, one of the sounding instruments that uses radio transmissions, they were able to work out where the where the uh, over days actually where the actual lander came to rest. And it was uh, whilst we hit the spot that we were designed to hit within a few tens of meters. Um, of course, because we didn't stay on the surface, we moved uh, a significant different a distance away from the original. Uh, chosen landing spot. And so, so while this was all a very uh, uh, tense time, I'm sure, it's, it's worth remembering that this is something that had never been done before. This really was history in the making, landing on a comet or soft landing on a comet for the, for the very first time. And, and there was uh, no way of knowing what to expect when he got there. And it, it seems some, from some of the early, um, early results that were released by the, I think it was the MUPAS instrument that you mentioned earlier, some of the early results indicated that the surface of the comet is actually much harder than was expected. So possibly that's what caused it to bounce, and that could have been one of the um, one of the factors, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think they described it as being a little kind of powdery or kind of uh, crust on the outside, but actually underneath it was very very hard. Yeah, you're right. And um, so whether or not that's the the processing of the ice water and resublimation or something, we're not too sure. But uh, you know, those guys are still trying to work out. What all their what all their data means, but yeah, it was a uh, we hit you know um, when the guys were designing this you know early on, um, they had to try and take into account everything from it being a very loose aggregated material, a bit like shaving foam, through to being a you know potentially granite. So um, so you know the poor old engineers had a really hard time and did a fantastic job in the end to actually allow the instruments on board to survive such a you know such an impact and uh, you know and, and I think the vast majority of the instruments have got data so um, and have operated in a nominal way so um, you know a great effort all around I think very much so and and the lander had batteries on board that would power it for it ended up being about two and a half days, I believe, uh, and it also had solar panels, but unfortunately the place it ended up was in the shadow of a a small cliff and so it wasn't able to get uh, solar power which that meant that there was a huge scramble to actually get as much data out as possible i mean did you sleep for that two and a half days uh we did 
but uh, I'll be honest to say we didn't sleep very much, um, mainly because, of course, you're, you're dictated by the time frame of the comet. And uh, if your instrument is timetable to operate, then you have to be there to take the data and process it and, uh, most importantly, make decisions going forward. Because uh, the lander itself was pre-programmed. You know, the first so-called uh, FSS, or the first sign sequence, was all programmed months before, six months ago. Um, Unfortunately, after the non-nominal landing, um, we had to go into a safe mode. And so whilst we worked out what, exactly what was going on and, uh, as you say, what was going on with the batteries, and, uh, and in the end, we, we ended up rewriting everything we had previously written. So um, there were several meetings, you know, and 70-odd people in a room, all with their own agendas, all, you know, actually all coming up with uh, the best way forward for the for the mission. And, uh, and thankfully, you know, um, given that everybody had invested so much time and effort, um, I think we, we did very well in coming out with a, a very practical solution. Um, but to put it into context, you know, we had initially four hours of instrument time in our primary science. Um, because we knew the batteries were not going to last, we dropped that down to just over one hour. And um, in fact, before we could actually upload it, we had to drop that down to 35 minutes. So a lot of kind of uh, effort went in for my colleagues who rewrote the sequences in, in you know, computer code in hexadecimal in less than one hour uh, to actually then get that up onto the spacecraft and actually get results before the battery died was, was, was pretty amazing, really. So. Um, I think when you're in that kind of situation, obviously your adrenaline is running and uh, your brain is working over overtime. But uh, they basically did in in about 40 minutes what they would normally take a couple of months to do. So pretty impressive work all around. And in, and as well as the the impressive uh, sort of computer science aspect of it, as you say, coding up the instructions, the the computer code instructions to send to the uh, to send to the lander. There's also the prioritization of the science. So when you're told you've now only got 35 minutes instead of two hours, you have to pick which 35 minutes worth of science is done. And that must have been a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty tough decision to make. Oh, absolutely. You know, our primary science was originally always going to be collecting a core sample through the SD2 drill, the Italian drill system. Um, but given the way that we ended up and, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a, you know, 16 members out there, and between us, we discussed it. And uh, after the non-nominal landing, there was only ever time for one drill sample. And uh, both us and the German instrument, COSAC, both wanted it as part of our primary science. Um, but within the team, we allowed the German instrument to go first and COSAC and let COSAC take a sample. And we then chose, based on data we'd had from just after bouncing and also then at the landing site, we had an oven on board which would um, allow us to trap the atmosphere, so the gas cloud. So we had an oven filled with an absorbent, and we just decided to use that first. So we then analyzed that, and uh, with the view that because we had such a good signal just after bouncing, that there should be quite a bit of material in there. So um, that became our primary science during the first science phase. We hope the lander will wake up again in a few months' time, so um, we might even get a chance to do um, the full scientific sequence. And of course, that's because although the lander is is currently in the in the shadow of a cliff, the comet essentially has seasons. I mean, not in the same way that 
that we have weather and the seasons here on Earth, but in terms of the variable amount of sunlight in different places on the surface, it has seasons in that sense. So that's what's hope, that what the, the team hopes will wake it up. What, what do you think the chances are of that? Is there any estimate of whether that's likely to happen? Um, I've not seen any figures on it, but uh, just by speaking to the, the lead scientist for the lander, Jean-Pierre Bibring, uh, who, you know, who, who has access to an awful lot of data that we don't see as the lead scientist, he was very, very optimistic. Um, and in fact, he was so optimistic, he even thought that um, one of the advantages we now have as being underneath the cliff is that, of course, we won't get too hot. Yeah. So actually, we might survive perihelion and in fact going around the sun. So, you know, what we might have lost in the first science sequence due to only having about 90 minutes per cycle, 12-hour cycle of, uh, of, of sunlight, um, once the sunlight gets stronger as we approach the sun, um, we won't get the same heating effect as we would have done if we were out in the open surface. And so once the batteries recharge, get warmed up and they recharge, then um, we might get quite a bit of science, so for several months, which would be absolutely fantastic. And although the, the lander is going to get very, very cold as it sits in the shade, of course, it's been out in the... the not quite the deepest depth of space, but pretty cold reaches of space for several years now. It's been a 10-year journey to get there. So it is designed to be able to cope with getting very cold and then warming up again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we most electronics is qualified to at least minus 70 degrees centigrade. Um, I think when we switched off, when we hibernated, it was around about minus 20. So, um, but yeah, you know, it, the, on the balcony, uh, where the carousel system and the drill is, that was designed to work at minus 120 degrees centigrade. So, you know, things are pretty robust. And, um, you know, as long as the lander doesn't get too cold, most of the systems are designed to, to hopefully wake up again and survive and uh, continue to work. Now, now we've, we've talked about the instruments on board. These are essentially the, the scientific experiments that are on board the, uh, on, on board the lander. And I mentioned the one you're involved in is, is Ptolemy. We should talk a little bit about what that and, and, and what it's going to do. Uh, can you describe what Ptolemy is and what its its main aim on the comet is? Because it's it's essentially a, a, a little chemistry laboratory, right? Yeah, that's right. It's um, well, really, it's uh, it's a miniaturization of the systems we have in the laboratories here at BOU to analyze meteorite samples. So a lot of the processes we would do with a meteorite sample or rocks from space, basically, uh, is what we want to do in the comet. Um, so really that involves collecting a solid sample, in this case on the comet, it would be from the drill, um, and a nice core kind of sample, and then we do something called step combustion. So it really means you warm the sample up in stepwise method. On, the, on our primary science, we'd hope to do it in four steps. So we do the low temperature uh, step to start with, around about minus, uh, I think it was minus 100. Um, so that would get rid of the volatile species that may be present in the oven. Then we'd go up to uh, a higher temperature to release the water and analyze the water, uh, well, the amount of the water, but also the isotopic composition. So we would look at the hydrogen to deuterium ratio, but also the oxygen isotopes. And so to allow us to do that measurement, we would have to do different types of chemistry. Uh, the gas chromatography column, or GC columns, let us separate complex mixtures into simpler uh, analytes, which we then measure um, in the mass spectrometer. And we use something called an iron trap mass spectrometer. And that was selected because we had to have a really low mass system. We only had just over four and a half kilograms for the whole system. 
Um, so that included gas tanks, gas valves, um, the GC columns, and the actual mass spectrometer itself, and all the electronics, and all the heaters and everything. So the actual science was to look at, um, the primary science was to look at the isotopic composition of water and to try and re relate the isotopic composition of water on a comet to what we know it is on Earth. So we took standards with us to allow us to do the direct comparison. And the idea or the hypothesis we were testing was whether or not comets could have brought the building blocks of life, so organic compounds, but also water to Earth early on in the, the, the Earth's history. So, so if, if and when the, the lander wakes up in a few months' time, hopefully that's one of the, the first things you're going to do, I suppose. I think um, given that we were so gracious to let the uh, COSAC system go first, I think, you know, uh, as long as we can fit within the required budget and, uh, and time constraints in terms of power and energy and uh, obviously time, then um, I think uh, we would be favourites to, to be given the first drill sample during the long-term science, yes. I think, uh, you know, we have a very good working relationship with our COSAC colleagues. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think the pragmatic answer would be we'd get a drill sample first. You also mentioned these organics. Now, we should clarify, th these organics are not, are not life, but these are the, the, the basic building blocks of life, so carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, that's right, but, but you know, in molecules that you would recognize. So, for, the, for instance, things like methane, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, higher hydrocarbons like ethane or ethene or whatever. Um, and potentially, we might even find things like um, amino acids. So, you know, really would be then the building blocks of life. We kind of already know that these things can form from photochemistry. So, if you have, the, uh, if you have enough of the light elements, hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, present in different molecules, you can get photochemistry that can take place in the in space, and uh, ultimately, you can get chemical reactions that can build these very simple molecules and build the and those in turn react to then form other molecules. So um, other things that might be there are things like aldehydes or even uh, cyano compounds. So um, so yeah, there's plenty of plenty of chemical species for us to go and try and identify. And we, and we as you say, we know these these can exist just from the sunlight essentially helping the reactions to take place and that's because we've seen them in meteorite samples down on earth yeah one one is meteorite samples in fact um uh, one of my colleagues was able to uniquely identify 6000 different organic compounds present so it's almost as almost as much as in petrol or diesel it's wow. quite incredible so um so again you know trying to under, you know part of the science is trying to understand which of these molecules are are definitely in the meteorites and which ones then can be formed by the, the processes we use to study them. Because some compounds will be formed by, by the pyrolysis process. And, and this really is your, your background. Your background is chemistry, not, not astronomy, not astrophysics. You're, you're a chemist at heart, I guess. That's right, yeah. For me, the comet is just one other place to go and analyze, build a system to analyze. You know, um, The one thing about space missions, they're a bit like London buses. Um, you tend to get a few come together, and then you have big gaps in between. So, for instance, I worked on Beagle 2. Hmm. So I designed the chemistry set along with my colleagues to look for the signs of life on Mars. Uh, unfortunately, Beagle 2 didn't work in 2003. Uh, you know, we failed to land properly. But, you know, we were, we were, I, was, I went from working on Rosetta to working on Beagle 2, because Mars was much closer, it was only a six-month six kind of uh, transfer, by the end of 2003, 
uh, before Rosetta launched, we'd already completed Beagle. Um, and as I say, uh, and we also had Cassini Huygens. Some of my colleagues had a, had developed an instrument for Cassini Huygens. We went to Titan in in the Christmas of 2004. So we had lots of missions all going on all at the same time, and then um, we've, we've really not had very much in between. Um, so we've been out looking at different projects. So for instance, one of the application areas I look at is 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 applying the kind of well, one the know-how, but also the uh, the the very good analytical infrastructure we have here to terrestrial applications, such as looking at developing a method for TB or cancer detection. I'm working with some people at Cardiff, actually, with a colleague of mine at the OU, and we're looking at uh, whether or not we can detect prostate cancer using one of the instruments I would normally use to analyze meteorites. Um, we've developed a system for air monitoring in submarines, and uh, again. Many of the people who worked on Rosetta and Beagle and Cassini Huygens are members of that team. So it's a it's a very diverse kind of group of people you require to build something like Ptolemy. And um, it doesn't you know, for most of us it doesn't really matter what the challenge is. It's the it's the coming up with the solution that's uh, that's the ch that we really enjoy. Um, that said, it's very very satisfying to think that something we delivered in 2001, in June 2001, is when we put it on the lander. Um, to have basically sent it 4 billion miles, 10 years, around the solar system, basically in a big deep freeze, uh, it wakes up and it, it works perfectly. It's very, very satisfying. And, and back in 2001, when you, when you were delivered it, and it must have been a decade before that, the design of the instrument and the, and the mission started pretty much, or certainly a good few years before that, our understanding of, of comets themselves was so much poorer than it is now. So it was. You must have been sort of designing an instrument without really knowing what it was trying to measure. Yes and no. You know, we we relied on our principal investigators. So it's Colin Pillinger and Ian Wright. They had to sit down and work out, to the best of their knowledge, what it was we were going to measure. So um, I do remember Ian coming up with the Ian cometary model, and uh, it was mainly water, some CO2, methane, CO. Um, and some organics, and that literally was the level of kind of detail we had. As you say, the amount of information already from this Rosetta mission blows away what we knew previously. The images we have, you know, from the orbiter craft before landing are just mind-blowing. Once the instruments process the data, we'll learn even more. You know, COSAC, I know, has good data. We have good data. Uh, and certainly instruments like Rosina on the orbiter have some incredible data. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll learn a lot more. Well, that'd be great. I look forward to seeing those. And, and, and then, as you say, that uh, in a few months, fingers crossed, the lander is going to re reawaken as, the, as it gets a bit more sunlight and everything will start again and you'll suddenly have a lot more to do with uh, taking data and then, and then much more to do with, with analysing it. So, so probably a busy year next year, I guess. Yes, I think it will be, yeah. Um, as I said... So, you know, this whole idea that the thing will it will survive because it won't get too hot, you know, really does open up the kind of um, timescales, really. And, uh, you know, I think Rosetta is due to work for another 20 months, the orbiter craft. How long we survive will depend, obviously, on uh, on outgassing, presumably. And, uh, you know, if we get a vent that opens up underneath us, we might get blown off. But, uh, but conversely, um, you know, the whole idea that as the coma develops, actually... For us, that's quite good because we can survive to probably 10 to the minus 3 millibar. So um, 
there'd be quite a strong atmosphere around there that we would be able to effectively sniff continuously. So even if our drill doesn't get down and get us a sample, um, you know, there could be some very interesting temporal or you know time scale changes uh, in what gets released, and uh, you know that that will then give kind of ground truth measurements to uh, to other instruments like Rosina on the on the actual orbiter. So uh, exciting times. Very much so. Well, uh, Garrett Morgan uh, from the Open University, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, Philae and Rosetta were certainly an excitement for November, but I'm joined now by Hugh Lang. So welcome back to the programme, Hugh. Hello, Chris. Uh, it's mainly solar system stuff this month, and we have the inner planets on show. Yes, uh, we have three uh, planets at, at, at sundown or twilight. Uh, we have Mercury, Venus and Mars. Venus is making a, a welcome reappearance into the evening sky now. Uh, at the end of the month, it's going to be at its best as far as December is concerned. Quite bright, very easy to see. It sets about 40 minutes after sunset. Uh, Mercury will also be there, uh, low, unfortunately, very low to the horizon, but that will make a better appearance in January. And Mars, well, it's been hanging around now for <laughs> months in actual fact. Uh, that is starting to sink towards the southwest also, but it'll be up for the rest of December. The other indicator, basically, is uh, on the last of the month, as you find that the Venus, Mercury and the Moon, the Moon would be a, quite a good guide towards those two planets. So that's on the 22nd, I believe. Yes. Yeah. The, the other planet around is, is Jupiter, which is up as well. That's right. Uh, it's, it's sort of rising at about mid-late evening, about 10 o'clock in the evening. Uh, the interesting thing about Jupiter this, this month is that we have an effect which is known as the mutual phenomena, which is basically when the Earth actually crosses the uh, equatorial plane of Jupiter until the moons end up uh, producing eclipses and occultations, uh, which you should be able to see with a pair of binoculars, obviously you won't see it with naked eye, but if you have a telescope it will be very interesting to follow a number of those, because you very rarely do see them. So you see the moons pass in front of each other That's as right. they go around, That's, that could be fun to, fun to watch. We talked in the main part of the show about comets of course, uh, well not comets hitting the earth but tiny tiny grains of dust giving us meteors or, or shooting stars and there's a meteor shower taking place in mid-December. It's actually two meteor showers in December that are worth looking at. The first one in mid-December is the Geminid meteor shower, arguably the best meteor shower of the, of the year. Very, very slow moving and very, very bright generally with a yellowish colour. Unfortunately, the peak occurs during the middle of the day, <laughs> so it's not going to help us from the UK. But if you actually look on the 14th, around midnight, which is probably the best time to look for so, them. So that's the night of the 13th into the 14th? Yes, the night of the 13th into the 14th. So, uh, you should see quite a number. You should see at least 20 to 30 an hour bright ones. Okay. The drawback is the moon will be up, but it's setting, so it shouldn't cause too much of a trouble. So any time between the 12th and the 14th of December, go out and try and see these slow-moving Geminid meteors. And there is another show on as well. That's right. There's another show on the uh, 22nd, 23rd. There's the Ursid meteor shower. Nowhere near the numbers of the uh, Geminids, but you should see somewhere between about 15 to 20 bright meteors an hour uh, looking towards the north. Okay, so a couple of meteor showers to, uh, to look out for. And, and we'll be back in a few weeks. But until then, Hugh, thanks very much. Bye-bye, Chris.